0: following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good evening, Gallery family. Well, like I' Liv said, I'm Rachel, and um, tonight we're going to be reading through Ephesians chapter 5. Um, So bear with me. It's a long long chapter, but we're going to get through it by God's grace and through his presence. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must, must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Let me, let me say this. I just want to remind you of a song lyric that we just sang. Um, we sang, most of us. Um, we will go where you lead me. Um, so tonight we're being led to this chapter five and we're being led to walk into it. Um, and so there's a lot of things that have been taught over the years. And there's a lot of things you've probably been taught over the years. And so I want to add to the conversation, but I just want to remind you guys this. It is impossible for us to address chapter five and not understand chapters 1 through 3. Okay, so if you've missed all the other chapters leading up to chapter 5, before you come to any conclusion, before you get any sense of uh, an illness in your spirit um, this evening, you need to go back and make sure that you understand the first three chapters, because then you will have a chance for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what is actually true for us, in chapter 5, and you'll have a chance to understand a little bit more of what wisdom looks like um, in our context and in our generation and under our cultural influences and the spirits of our culture that still rage war against us today. Um, and then we'll be again to walk a little bit more in the power of the Holy spirit so that these words then become true in our life. And despite what our current actions are, we will want to please Christ who gave up his life for us. And so, um, in, in saying all that, um, I want to remind you, my challenge has been, and so this is your first time hearing it. I want you to hear the challenge. I want you to read the letter of Ephesians in one sitting um, at least once or twice throughout the rest of this week, and just let it feel like a letter that was written to you. Find yourself in it. Don't rush it. Take your time. Pause at the punctuation. Function on, you know, focus on what is actually being said um, as if it was for you, because the letter that was written to the church in Ephesus was written by Paul. Some decades after he planted the church, and he's an older man, the church has now grown. The church is now having people come. And there's most likely multiple churches in and around Ephesus that have all grown out of this because most of them were meeting in homes. And so this letter is now being circulated amongst these churches as a way of saying to them, I'm proud of you, but you need to make sure that you have right thinking about God and you have right practice because the danger is is once you get Once a church kind of grows up, it can become stale, it can run after false doctrine, enthusiasm dies off, people's opinions start throwing in, like, we should do this, we should do this, and if we're not keeping our eyes focused on Christ, we're in some serious trouble. And so Paul was writing this after he planted the church in Ephesus, which the city of Ephesus at that time was the epicenter of cities on the mediterranean sea i mean it was one of the most important cities in the world it was a primary source of trade which meant the city was loaded with money so much so that they kept a lot of the money in some of the temples because the temples were some of the most secure places but there were not there wasn't just one temple there were multiple temples to multiple gods because if you know anything about the romans they were all about the gods They're like, pick your God. Just have a God. It doesn't matter what God it is, but just have a God. But if you don't have a God, you're weird. Like, if you don't have a God, they actually referred to as an atheist, which is interesting that we've kind of flipped that word in our generation or a few generations back, that it's now the people that don't have God that are atheists or don't believe in God, but the Romans actually accused Christians and Jews of that day of being atheists because they couldn't understand how they they were so exclusive about their God. And so... Paul walks into that city. He starts to make disciples of fellow Jews that were interested. They actually had been baptized by John, John the Baptist, which was like 30 years before this. And they hadn't been discipled. And he says, you know what? John was actually talking about somebody else that was coming. Would you be interested in hearing more about that person? And 12 people said yes. And so Paul started pouring in a crazy amount of time into these people, telling them good theology, things that had been revealed to him. And before long, it says that the entire city and the entire region had heard about the Christ that Paul had been talking about. It doesn't mean that they all believed, but they all had heard it. And then not only had they heard it, but enough had heard it that it changed the economy of the city because a riot broke out. A riot broke out because people weren't spending money buying the statues and going into the temples and doing all the things that were making people money. And they were seeing a gradual decline in their profits. And finally, Demetrius did some research and he found out that Paul was teaching, tracked him down, grabbed some of his followers because he couldn't get his hands on Paul, started a riot. But in the midst of the riot, a peacemaker stood up, which was the mayor. And the reason why he stood up is because he didn't want Rome to come crashing in and take away their freedom. Because Rome had given Ephesus a lot of freedom and he wasn't really concerned about who was right or wrong in this situation. He wanted to keep his job and he wanted to keep his city alive. But what was said of them was that, wow, we can't find any accusations. So here, let me just let me make sure this makes sense, because I can see that a lot of times in a um, like a word only teaching, like there's no visual illustrations. There's nothing for me to capture your attention that could just go right by you. Because of good teaching, solid discipleship, they learned about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come on them. Nobody could accuse them of doing anything wrong. Their lives were just and noble and right. They weren't stealing. They weren't slandering their temples. They weren't going around to people oh, saying everybody that goes to that church is an idiot. right? They weren't saying that kind of stuff. They were just talking to people with power and conviction, which was the spirit's job. But they were making a clear presentation of the gospel. But yet they weren't going around talking bad about the non-gods, even though Paul would stand up and say, well, these other gods aren't gods. But he would never go around speaking badly of people. He was just used in a powerful way. I love what first Peter says in 212. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Then we talked, man, there was so much we covered in the first three chapters of Ephesians. So here it goes really quickly. Grace, peace, lavished love from a father in Christ, like he is the house we now dwell in, Holy Spirit, sealed, in the Holy Spirit that seal brings a sense of security authenticity a sense of authority it it brings with us more than right now we're aware that we have we must mature in our understanding of what the Holy Spirit provides us and then he goes on and starts teaching them all about ways that the whole gospel has been bent around bringing Gentiles and Jews together Where it was one family stream that now multiple streams are now building into a river that is the the promised people. So everything that God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everything that God revealed to Moses and then commissioned the people at Mount Sinai, it is still true of us today. We are to be a holy people in this world that other people are drawn to God through. And so none of that theology has changed. And so all of this stream, we're now all in it. And so we're now all in the promised family of God. And now this stream is now made up of both Jew and Gentile. And there are actually Gentiles in the Old Testament that jumped in. One of the greatest stories of this, even makes the genealogy of Christ in, Genesis, in Matthew chapter 2, is Rahab the harlot. She was a Gentile, but she's actually mentioned in the line leading up to Christ. And so there's always been a mentality in God's family that it's not just the Jewish world, even though the Jewish people were promised to inherit it and God would be their king and their Lord. But God has always wanted other people to be a part of the promise. And so now through Christ, it is now coming like a mighty wave. Everybody is now being um, invited in because of the way God has gifted the church, the people that he's set up to help bring this together. And when you and I finally walk in step with all of that, Paul says at the end of chapter 3, God will now do immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. So when we have right thinking about God, right thinking about Jesus, Right. thinking about the Holy Spirit. Right. Thinking about our relationships with each other. That is a recipe for God to radically change a city. We use the word disruption. We could disrupt the things that are going on in the city. I've used this. I'm going to use the same illustration that I've used the other night, especially tonight, because there's so much in this passage about sexuality. Is that if we want clubs that are like on Baltimore Street closed, we need to disciple men and women. Because if there's nobody to go to them and nobody that wants to work them, then they won't be in business. And so if you and I understand, which was what we talked about last week, what is our calling to tell people about Jesus? That's our first calling. Many times we think that our calling is our vocation, and that is true. There are things like Paul, who starts out the whole chapter, or the whole book, with saying, I, the Apostle Paul, because the Lord Jesus Christ wanted me to be, right? And so he was very clear that his role in the church was for him to be an apostle. And so there is a calling towards vocation, but the foundational truth that it applies to all Christians is that because we believe in Christ and we've received the Holy Spirit, we then become a temple to other people that 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 paints a picture about what the one true God looks like. And so if we are not talking about our faith, we have not even started step one of our obedience and our salvation. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 and so much more. And so let me get to Ephesians 5. I remember um, uh, walking, um, well, I went to a Christian university. And one of the things that we did in the Christian university is we would study what churches were doing. Because I was getting a biblical studies degree, focusing on ministry. And so you would research churches. And I can remember one church that I researched that actually made yard signs for their church to take home with them to place in their yards, as well as um, they were getting ready. Well, they made other signs that were around the church building. But I remember that the one word on the sign that was big and bold was three letters. And what three letters do you think it was? Sex. And then it said, now that we have your attention, we have services at 9 a.m., you know, Um, right? And so I just want you to understand um, that is true. So much of our culture is geared to sex. I mean, they market it in such a way that it's just like, whoa, I mean you just you're just like whoa wait a minute and then you realize that it's not even selling sex it's selling carpet right you know it's it's like okay so what does that person have anything to do with the the carpet that I'm going to vacuum right but no this carpet is now sexy right i'm like <laughs> We use that word for so many things. I mean, you can't even buy a soft drink nowadays or pick a fast food restaurant without it being sexualized because they realize that you just can't have a Whopper, you've got to have the Whopper, right? I mean, it's just it's just the way that our society is 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 describing. Have you guys not seen this? Are you in agreement? Yeah, I mean, so much about it. We just I mean, hey, wait, this is this is prime week. I guarantee you that you will spend more time because the Ravens aren't in the Super Bowl watching the commercials. Now, you tell me at the end of the Super Bowl how much of the Super Bowl is really about the goddess of our nation, which is sex. I believe in Paul's world, it wasn't much different because most of the temples were about sex. Most of the culture that day was very much about sex. Um, And I know I've said this before, and I'll probably remind you a couple times through the night because I want to press pause on a few things as we go through this, because I know we all come from different backgrounds and different opinions. But we've been working a lot towards a teaching on what really honors God in our sexuality. And we will be marketing that to our church alone um, because we want to make it a family conversation but i've done a lot of reading about what sex was like in the first century um and it's much like baltimore street so we aren't facing a sexual crisis uh, in in our generation um like as if it's original to us we are deceiving ourselves to think if we're the first church to ever struggle against sex we're the we would be thinking too highly of ourselves to think that in our humanity We are different than the other humans that have walked before us. And so I say that because I want you to trust that Paul was writing this because he was writing to a church whom he loved and is repeatedly recorded as weeping over because he so badly wanted them to understand the lavish love of God and understand that we carry the holiness of God in us, the the Spirit, we're His temple. And it's to be pure and righteous and and seeking after him. And he doesn't want anything to take away from that. I believe that many people in Paul's generation and many people in our generation see no reason for any restraint as it relates to things sexual. I had an interesting conversation with a, a man not too long ago. Um, Actually, time's flying by. It's really been three years. Um, (laughs) I'm just thinking like, wow, time has flown. Um, uh, I have a lot more gray hairs than it was. But I remember we were talking about the movie, um, um, I think it's 12 Years a Slave or something like that powerful film I I have to admit I haven't watched it fully because number one it's just sickening to my spirit and so much of my work in the city is already sickening to my spirit I don't want to sit down for two hours and watch something else that makes me continue to know how sick our society is still Um, but I knew enough about the film that there's a lot of naked women scenes because of the ways that they depicted slavery and so I was talking to this man who I knew had a pornography problem Um, And in the process of talking about that pornography problem, he was talking to me about why it was okay in that film, because it was actually showing history. And so I was trying to get him to tell me, are you telling me that in watching that, it didn't continue to make you think about other things that you've seen, that you could totally separate it? And we argued about it for a good long time. And I don't think I won the argument, but I think I sowed enough of a seed that I just want to say as we walk into all of this today, Paul is well aware of all the ways that we're tempted. It's not like he's a monk hauled off in the middle of the Himalayan mountains and has never seen a woman before, never seen a naked body before, never seen anything, and and he's just writing what the Spirit's telling him to do. And we're like, well, yeah, you, you can't relate, Paul. No, no, Paul knew. Paul, most likely because of his position of authority that he had before he met Christ, probably had similar experiences that he wasn't victorious in. And so I don't think he's speaking as a man that hadn't been tempted. I don't think he's speaking as a man that never made a mistake. He's speaking as a man that was grace forgiven and then walking in that. Many um, in the time of Ephesus would go a step farther they would incorporate into their temples sex as a part of worship i just want you guys to be aware that's how the culture of ephesus when paul's writing a church there were a lot of the men and women that were now coming to church that had been practicing sex in worship and so now can you see why paul would give so much attention to saying, now you're a believer in Christ. I know that you've seen this or personally experienced it, but this now has no place in the body of Christ. And so he's making a case for all that. Um, I think that there's also, coming back to our century, it's kind of hard to bounce between their generation and our generation, so I'm going to try to make it clear when I'm talking about both. But I also want to say, I don't want to say it in our defense, but I also want to say that, when you're told something it's really hard not to believe it um why do you think nations like north korea control what the people hear in media right and other nations why do you think that's even happening in america where certain things are shared and other things aren't shared i mean we can blame other nations but we are still we, we we're pointing out plank in somebody else's eye but we have specks in our own eye right so when you control information you can control thinking. We've done that in many ways in our U.S. history teaching children because we leave so much of the African-American story out of our history, right? And so we've we've taught people a history we want them to believe, not in a history that actually happened. And so there's a lot of that that has happened. We are guilty of doing this very same thing. And so one of the things that has happened in the church or in Christianity or in America, in our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation that has spilled over into our generation has been the fact that Christians many times are confused because they've been led astray by the teachings outside and inside the church. I can actually remember as a kid basically seeing or or, or having teachings that... um, that the experience of sex um, um, was kind of born out of embarrassment or where teachers and parents um, thought that our bodies were evil. And so sex was dirty. I mean, that was a generational teaching. It was like the way to get people not to have sex, was just make it something bad, make it dirty, make it evil, make it, you know, gross, whatever. And they spent years upon years of guilting and making people think that God had created something different, so when that happens, so when there's an extreme teaching, what then happens? The pendulum swings. Now you guys getting me in the sixties and seventies right it well no this is this this is good this is, feels good, this is exciting this is This is right. This is what God designed. And then you see a group of people saying, why doesn't Christianity embrace this? Because this is religious. This is special. And so there was this war about, well, you know, um, are you a free spirited church or are you not? There was this great debate because this pendulum had swung from dirty and nasty to man, this is God's gift. Everybody get into it, right? And they literally did. because god had made us sexual beings Um, many were supposing or even proposing and there were actually religious practices in our country under the name of christ that expressed um, that this experience was whatever you want is what god wants you to enjoy and that's been a dangerous statement i think for a lot of us is like when we think well well, it's it's whatever and there's nothing about the story of christ that's about whatever you never see jesus just saying well you know Just do whatever. I'm with you. Right. And again, in the midst of all of this, I'm about to say to you again, I've been working on a teaching because I want you to hear what I'm about ready to say. I think comparatively few Christians would take. To this level of an extreme nowadays? Like, this is the side of the stage I'm representing that's the uh, sex is dirty and this is everybody's in. We're, we're trying to find a medium in this. But many say that, like, intercourse outside of marriage, occasional recreational sex, same sex practices are to be welcomed even celebrated by Christians. And, I'm, and my, my, my point in saying all that is Ephesians 5 seems to be talking about something different. It it it, it 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 implies that there's something more holy about the human body and the way that we engage with sexual practice. Paul has a way of kind of cutting to the heart at issues. We've kind of talked about that repeatedly. Like he's in the middle of a conversation with somebody and they're talking about their God and he's talking about his and he just turns and is like, well, your God is no God at all. I mean, right, that's a pretty sharp cut into the conversation. So verse 6, he says, don't be fooled. Again, it goes back to what he said last night in chapter four, which is my paraphrase. Don't be a baby. Grow up. Right. So now in regards to sexual experiences, he's writing this church saying, don't be fooled. And they like, well, I'm not being fooled. Well, he's like, no, you're being fooled. Because if your sexual thoughts aren't lining up with the father, son, spirit's purpose for the church, then you're being fooled. Why is so much of the chapter about the mind and maturity and all that? He's like. There are a lot of empty words out there, words which sound big and important, which echo and resonate in our culture, but which have nothing inside of them. No life and no truth is what he's implying to them and what he's saying, but actually not implying, he's saying it very directly. Precisely because sex is good and an important part of God's creation... It's actually the reason that the animal kingdom keeps going, right? And we keep, that's why people at the zoo right now are doing things against four endangered species. They're trying to protect the sexual intimacy of those animals so that they can give birth to offspring so that future children can go pet a giraffe, right? So they're working hard to protect the sexual intimacy of animals so that procreation can continue to happen and, and zoos will be filled and less and less animals are going to go extinct. But yet also saying that, God has a special gift inside of humanity for sex. It wasn't just something we were to like watch YouTube videos I'm like, whoa, that was weird, right? It's, it's for us to be like, wow, this is, this is God. This is what God wants for us. It's precisely because sex is good and important. It's about tenderness and intimacy between a man and a woman. It's a God-given act of procreation. Precisely, it is because it's the occasion of great blessing and emotional fulfillment. And if you haven't tasted that yet... Which, if you're not married, is my desire that that would be true of you. Um, And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I just like saying it right now. Once you taste the right thing, everything else you'll know is wrong. But it requires a great amount of courage and strength in our culture to get to the right thing. Um, Because of all these different things, people on the road to the generally human existence promised in Christ... Must avoid all cheap imitations. I have spoken to so many men, more than women. More men come to me and want to talk about pornographic or sexual addictions that they have than women do, which I'm grateful for. That would be a little awkward. Um, But I'm finding over and over again that they just can't give up the cheap imitation. What's killing a lot of the people on our city streets? Cheap Cheap imitation drugs. What's killing a lot of people um, at work? Um, cheap imitation work app habits, right? Anything that is less than what's intended will ultimately kill you. Casual sex is a, a parody of the real thing. Uh, for those of you that like music, I'm looking forward. Um, I probably ought not to say the name because in case they watch online... Um, Want to kind of be a surprise but one of our young ladies who plays the viola in our worship team is doing her junior audition on saturday um... and i can't wait recital not audition recital sorry when it comes to music just bear with me on terminology (laughs) but i'm trying to invite you all in because if i just use sports analogies you will be like uh... so i'm trying to reach you where you are but she's she's at peabody she's going to be in this beautiful hall at peabody doing like a almost an hour long recital and what i want to say is is that's pure and just spectacular if you've ever been to a recital at peabody and listened to the students play in those specially designed acoustic halls where the music just envelops you versus me going home to my broken record player with a really crappy old speaker and trying to listen to the same music that she's playing Why would I want to sit on Saturday afternoon and listen to my crappy record player when I could go to Peabody in the afternoon and listen to pure magic, pure joy, pure artistry? And so I think Paul is trying to pull at that in all of us because he knows that there's something special. I also have heard this, and this is what really troubles me, because I think our focus is wrong. And so I sit down with many couples that are engaged, and all they've heard is bad stories about marriage. They've heard bad stories about sex in marriage. They've heard bad stories about just communication in marriage. Well, you'll enjoy your first week. That's kind of like the 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 thing that you hear nowadays like nobody says man you're getting ready to start an amazing commitment but remember everything i'm telling you right now is because two people believe the first three chapters of ephesians right if you don't if you have a partner that's not on the first three chapters with you it is going to be a hard road it is a ministry calling in a marriage relationship but when you have two people that have the same faith in god the same inness in Christ, the same power of the Holy Spirit, the same love for brothers and sisters, excessive generosity, a lack of selfishness, a, a sense of sacrifice, and you mix all that together with two people that love each other, oh my goodness. It is a sacred moment. But many have claimed that sex inside of marriage becomes boring And they look for experiments elsewhere. And that's, I think, what Paul is talking about here. He is warning them that, man, once you go down that road, it is destructive. Most of the evidence in this Western world thinks that a lot of what the church has to say in this chapter is just empty words. Let's take an honest look at this for a minute. Um, which hopefully we're taking an honest look at all of it. But I think right now in the midst of all of this, I mean to say is wherever you come from, whatever your background is, I want us to just take a step back and say, what is honestly happening here in Ephesians chapter five? Those who relentlessly pursue new experiences, new experiences regularly end up bitter and disappointed. I mean, let's just take an honest step back. Even some of you in this room that have already engaged in sexual activity and you're not married, honestly evaluate those relationships, um, especially if it's been multiple times and it's been with different people. Are you feeling loved and cherished and fulfilled? Are Or are you left wanting and feeling like, man, there's just something else that should have happened some of us love the emotional electricity but then the danger of that illicit casual relationship really turns into all different types of things and for those of you that have experienced drugs they're the very same way cocaine and heroin and the first like wow 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 this is amazing like I, I don't know that i'm telling you what people have told me and research has shared um, thank the lord um, but yet it will kill you It'll kill you. Every time two people make love physically, this is what the bodies are saying, not the minds, the physical bodies based upon the way God designed it. Listen, this would be a quote. This would be like one body saying to the next body, we belong to each other totally, completely, and forever. That's what sexual intimacy between two people is. The bodies are communicating. The, the touch to one another um, is a communication that one body is saying to the other, we belong together. And so when you pull that away into casualness, it becomes a lie. Like you didn't tell the body that it was lying to you. And sooner or later, all lies come out and are exposed. And any time you've been lied to, it hurts. Anytime you've been lied to, it breaks trust and there's more fear and there's more doubt. And then you carry that into a marriage and then you start having sexual relationships with somebody that you really do want to spend the rest of your life with. But your experience has been alive the whole time. And so now you're having to repair trust by saying, is your body really mine? Is my body really yours? And then you're, you're constantly doubting after the experience is over. You're like, wow, I mean, is this really Is this really right? Is this really true? Because my past has been lying to me. And so if we can remove the lies from our lives, then we can have a chance to walk in the power of the truth. And again, I'm saying this, if you believe chapters one, two and three, even if you have a sexual past in Christ, the Holy Spirit heals all of that and renews all of that and brings life back to us. And so there's not to be guilt or shame. But Paul does speak very specifically by calling out here by saying God's wrath. I think mentioned here isn't just punishment waiting for people at the end of the present age, which is a Jewish way of saying the end of time, which is when Christ returns, the present age. They would refer to time as, oh, this is the present age, but there is another age to come. So this is how I would define the way God's wrath is played out. Because if you interpret this as I have sex outside of God's plan, there's a lightning bolt waiting for me. Um, That's not the way this needs to be interpreted because of the cross, which we're about ready to start a series on why Jesus had to die because he took all the lightning bolts for us. Right? I just want you guys to be aware of that. That's That's what makes God's love so amazing is that he willingly let his son take all the shots for us. And so... God's wrath here isn't an arbitrary thing whereby God makes up some rules to stop people enjoying themselves and then threatening to, to get cross with them when they go ahead anyway. It's not like God says, let me let me show you that your bodies are designed for sex. But by the way, you can't do it. But God isn't. But then if you do, I'm going to blow you up. That's not God's way. But God's wrath is actually built into the creation that he set in motion. Let me give you an example. Um, Some of you work in water systems in our city. We can't drink out of the harbor right now because of humanity's abuse has caused a product that can't be enjoyed because God's wrath is built into culture and creation, not culture, but into creation, where when we misuse the resources that he's given us, there's a bad effect. And it's the same thing in sex. There's a way God intended it. But when you use it in the wrong way, there are things built into the creation way that then take effect. And the negative effects of that, and I'm not going to get into a long list of what those could be, But many of you know what misbehavior and sexuality really can bring to you if you aren't using it in the way God wants. It's not because God's up there like, well, you just messed up zap. And you're like, well, that was my first time. But this person over here has had sex a hundred times and they don't have any. Well, it's you can't we can't look at life that way. We have to stand holy before the Lord. So here's here's Paul's remedy. All right. And it's pretty clear and it's very challenging to the world in which our newspapers, radio and TV and social media are hurling suggestive images at us all the time. Right. He says this. I don't think you can get any clearer than this. Don't even talk about it among yourselves, he says. Every time you mention the words, every time an off-color story, a joke, hits your lips, you defile yourself and shift your thinking and your imagination towards the way that leads to darkness. So it's not about, oh, well, I just have to worry about what I do behind closed doors. It's the coarse joking. He goes on to say, of course you must avoid fornication. The casual sex that demeans and cheapens not only participates, that, that, that... not only the participants, but also the gift of sex itself. It, it takes away from the gift of it itself. And he says the best way of doing that is to work at taking, out your, um, taking all that out of your mind altogether. And the path to that goal is to remove it from your speech. Now, let's just, let's just talk about that in reality. Every advertisement is about sex. So how in the world do we take it out of our mind? How do we take it out of our speech? And let me just say this. There's a reason why we come together as the church. We've got to help hold each other accountable to what we're saying, what we're doing. And when our jokes are inappropriate, we should be like, whoa, that's not right. Don't we know that the mind is what leads the body to destruction? And if we cheapen sex by making jokes of it and making light of it, then we're in real trouble. And he's saying if you're making jokes about it, you might be living closer to darkness than you are the light. I think men who struggle with pornography many times are the ones that say the most sexual jokes. That's just been my experience as a pastor. It's the the guys that, I mean... Let me just be honest with you. There have been times on Sunday mornings where I almost wanted to punch some men in the church because I watched my, my daughter walk through the room and what do the guys do? I'm like, that dude's got a pornography addiction. And now he's making my daughter into one of his images that he's looking at. And it happens in this room. We're here to worship God. And guys are like, I mean, the old phrases, my eyes are up here. That's what women need to say to men all the time. My eyes are up here because you, you get the look over. And i tell you what, women, I notice you guys doing it all the time, but you're generally checking out the outfit. Sometimes you're checking out body type, but we've got to stop doing the drop down. Like, let me just evaluate what you're wearing tonight, especially at Walmart. Right. But um, but we need to get to the point where we at some level, like Paul is saying here, very frankly, is you just got to remove it from your eyes. You got to move it from your speech. You got to remove it from. Your activity, and at some level, we as men got to come together and we see each other doing that at church. Confront them. I had a guy that when I was in in, at at college, when I was in university, um, I worked my way through school. I worked nights to pay my way through school, and I go to class. And then I did an intern, like a paid professor helper, where they give you scholarship money each semester to help a professor. So I was the undergraduate helper, and there's another guy in the office that was a graduate helper. And we got to know each other a lot because the professor had a graduate helper and I was the undergraduate helper. And so we got to know one another. So we reconnected a few years ago at a conference and my wife and I were together and he walked up and he just was doing nothing but checking my wife out right in front of me. And I can't remember my exact words, but I actually said to him, why are you checking out my wife? And I said, you must have a serious problem. Three years later, he was fired from his church for pornographic addictions and all other kind of stuff. And it was obvious that he struggled with sexuality because he couldn't even control. Uh, I have to admit, it's hard to control your eyes around my wife. <laughs> well, uh, but. uh but we've got to get to the point because of the power of the Holy Spirit says I have the ability to do anything in the power of the Spirit. So if I'm having a hard time controlling my eyes, what can the Spirit help me do? Control my eyes. Verse five um, seems to be the first sight of um, like this puzzling thing. What, what is the difference between this is a this is a confusing part. This is puzzling to me. Because it says in here, the Messiah's kingdom and God's kingdom. It's like the kingdom of Messiah and of God. And so I was just, this was the first time reading through this. And I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't the Messiah's kingdom the same as God's kingdom? And so it made me do some research on this. And and, and I found in 1 Corinthians 15:23 through 28, which I'm not going to read it, but you can write it down. 1 Corinthians 15:23 through 28. Let me attempt to summarize it. According to Paul, the Messiah is already installed as the king of the world. And when, he, when his work as king is complete, that means he's going to come back and complete it. It's going to be set. All enemies, including sin and death, are finally defeated. Then God's kingdom, God himself, will be king in the way that he's always been intended. So the son is now in a preparation phase to prepare the earth for the father to actually be the father of the world. So that's what I believe Paul was talking about here when he's talking about God's, the Messiah's kingdom, Jesus's kingdom and God's kingdom. What Paul means is that people who behave in this way not only won't inherit the final kingdom, they really have no place in his. Notice that he labels sexual greed um, as a form of idolatry, which is also a part of other types of greed, that's also a form of idolatry. The the worship of false gods, the presumably includes what I believe is the entire pornographic industry. In fact, true religious a true religious experience, the experience of knowing the Creator God and through King Jesus produces true enlightenment. This is how Paul transitions out of this deep text. It's like because of a true relationship with Christ, the love of the Father, the inness in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of our sins. Those who have become light have formerly been in darkness and must behave now as people in the light. So if I was dark, Jesus saved me, then I'm light. I can't be, be in the light and be in the darkness at the same time. It means I'm probably not really in the light. Once again, verse 10 this this i think what he's meaning here is that we need to learn to think straight we have a thinking problem we have a wisdom problem a lack of wisdom problem we have a lack of understanding and he's saying to them Look, don't go with the flow anymore walk against it think out who god is who are you and learn to live in the light of god and his love so we find out who god is we find out who we are And then we adjust everything in our life to be more like who God is. We don't want God to make us better at who we are. The desire is for the Holy Spirit to make us more like Christ. And so we're not here to just be the best versions of ourselves. Even though there's a lot of good people out there that really are helping people handle emotional issues, handle the the problems of this world. And their true desire is to make people confident in their self-image, confident in their mental image, confident in the way that they act, which is all good. But that only gets you to a point because it's in God that we reach the fullness of who we're supposed to be as human. We are to be self-confident. God made me. I'm beautiful on the outside. I'm beautiful on the inside. And by the way, look at this light that comes out of me. Right. That's what the Holy Spirit can do in us that self-help can't help us with. All right. New topic. Thank the Lord. Um, It's interesting. He goes from sex to singing. I have to admit, sometimes I do, too. Um, uh, sorry, that was bad, um, but it is true. Um, but here Paul mentions three categories, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I don't believe it's clear exactly where these overlap or if there's special songs in here or all this kind of stuff. There is something special about this. I think some of the hymns that he's referencing could be some of the old Jewish psalms that they used to sing, but now they were putting a Christ emphasis in them. I also think that it's just like in our church. We've been singing old songs. We sing new songs that people have written in the last 10 years, at least in the last two, three years. But there have been songs that have been written out of our own church. And so I think this is the same pattern that's happening here. I even believe that there's spiritual songs and lyrics and melodies that they actually made up. But we really don't have a hymnal or a songbook or a slideshow presentation of the actual songs that they sung. But I honestly believe, and most theologians believe, that verse 14 is actually a song that they sang. This call to wake up, to rise up, and to live in the light of King Jesus. Imagine what that would have sounded like, hearing the people in the house talking about, let's wake up, let's rise up, let's live in the light of King Jesus. I think this is the sort of thing that was going on in music. But Paul doesn't see these hymns and songs simply as decorative and something that we're like, oh yeah, we, we, we worship when we sing. He's mixing it into a context where he's talking about sex and then he's going to talk about Marriage and family, he's on that path, but in the middle, why would he start talking about us singing? And it really struck me like this is a weird place in this passage for him to start talking about the types of songs they were singing, because I believe what he's saying here is singing is an actual way to actually practice our faith. If you don't want your heart and your mind to wander, sing. If you don't want to venture into realms of darkness, sing. If there's a best way to keep wisdom in front of you, to keep a thankful spirit in you, sing. If there's words of comfort that you need, sing. If there's guidance and good judgment that can come bubbling up uninhibited in your life, sing. I think this is what he's saying. Like, If you're struggling in these things, when you see a temptation, have a song queued up. Because the power of the Holy Spirit can move you through those temptations. I think he's saying that these hymns and these psalms today can still provide exactly the same kind of Christian nurture that we need. It gives instruction. It gives consolation. It gives warning. And it gives hope. The singing that Paul has in mind is ultimately an antidote, I believe, in living against darkness in our culture. I almost feel like asking Olivia and Ginger come up and share testimony of some things that songs have meant in their relationship. I've had privilege of seeing and hearing testimony of when the, the, the valley, of the shadow of death has been on them. How songs have been the light that's gotten them out of it. Yet again, his emphasis is on the mind. We can't lose sight of that. Ephesians 5 is about right thinking right thinking about sex right thinking about men right thinking about women and you begin the chapter six the right thinking about children and he's throwing in this idea that singing will help us think right and then will help us gain the wisdom that we're looking for so that we walk in the light and not into dark alleys and i believe that paul is saying this literally and metaphorically one of my least favorite proverbs and i'm and i'm drawing a blank on the chapter i think it's chapter 16 is the image of a man an older man standing at a window watching a younger man turn the corner and walk down the street and it's like an espn sports commentator he's up there like he just turned the corner he's walking towards that 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 enticing woman and he's got her his eyes fixed on her man when she gets her hands on him she's gonna have fun with that boy and he's just commentating the whole time about this, this guy that's walking towards a sexual encounter with an impure woman. And it's like he's in the window talking play by play like, oh, yes, all right. Wow, she's grabbed him. She's pulled his robe off. I mean, all this kind of stuff is what he's talking about. And I just want to say, old man, get out of the window, run down there and grab that boy, pull him into the house. Don't let him walk to temptation. And I believe that's what music can do for us. It can keep us from turning into a physical dark alley, but it also can keep us out of the metaphorical dark alleys. Christians are to see every day, every hour, every minute is an opportunity to serve the Lord, for understanding what his will is and getting on in doing it. Verse 16, coming out of this song, I think, can lead people to an obsessive lifestyle all right i want i want you guys to understand this he's telling us to take advantage of every opportunity um and that hits different personalities differently so i want to be cautious in how i say this but some of you are so detail driven so objective driven so um outline minded that you will literally plan out every second of your day. And if by chance a bump hits the road, you are way off whack. Personality changes, mood swings, and Jesus goes out the door, right? Um, and we've got to be careful that we don't overemphasize that this passage is about us being calculating being, and counting every minute. Going back to even the, t- the teaching Brandon Emily did two Sundays ago out Psalms 90, is that there's so much about our faith that needs to be intentional, but we, are, we need to be careful that we don't lose our peace in the midst of trying to take advantage of every opportunity. I know pastors that preach 52 Sundays a year and never take a vacation because they feel guilty when they're not at their church. And I'm like, well, what did Moses do on top of the mountain for 40 days away from his people? Uh, Jesus walked out the back door and people were at the front door. I'm like, so what makes you better than Jesus? You, you actually think that you can keep the physical stamina going so that you're effective every Sunday? You know, do you want church to worship you? I think some of us, are in danger of needing to have somebody coach us on how to relax. Because we are being tempted and barbarded with so many things. Um, my mom used to say, you need to take a chill pill, Ellis. Like, and, well, I'm not, she wasn't condoning drugs, right? But she was saying to me, you need to figure out a way to take a deep breath and slow it down. That's why Sabbath days are so important. On a Sabbath day, we say, it is all you, got, I am nothing, so I'm going to do nothing. I am going to remember who you are and who I am, and I want it to be in that order. Here is elsewhere, I think, learning how to worship is an excellent way to move forward. That's why we have as our phrase on Sunday morning, do you know it well enough to add, to be able to say it confidently at the same time? What is our daily window question every Sunday? And for those of you that have been here over a year, if you can't say it, then shame on us. All right. Now that we've all been reminded, let's say it together. What will help you find rest and value in the Lord today? Sometimes a simple liturgy will reset you. Sometimes you need an excited celebratory worship service. But we have got to figure out a way whether it's through solitude and prayer, through corporate singing, through journaling, through walks through a park at a safe hour of the day that we can sit and be refreshed um, and be reset in our thinking because the enemy wants to take our mind. For people that are struggling, see, here's the thing, because the contrary side of that is We don't want to be these spiritual people floating on a pillow like, oh, I'm in love with God today. And we really don't ever do the first calling, which our first calling is what? To tell others about Jesus. So we're now in this perpetual liturgy and just like, wow, this is good. This is God. But the flip side of that is that we're in danger of not taking advantage of days. And a a day is much like a river. The water that's out there wasn't the same water that was there the day before. That day is past. It's gone. You'll never see it again. Now, the river is the same, right? But the actual water in the river is different. And there has to be a balance between us saying, I need to relax and I need to be intent because what's in front of me will never be in front of me again. And we need to be willing and ready to take advantage of that For such people, verse 16, is another wake-up call. There is real evil attacking us in our lives. But we are children of the light and have a chance to do something about it. We literally are in a city full of darkness and we have light. And we can actually make a difference in the power of the Holy Spirit for God's kingdom here. And we need to grab hold of that chance with both hands and run after it. Of course, verse 18, there's nothing like a few drinks to make the opportunities slip by unobserved, right? We can hit the bottle, extra glasses of wine, and before long, our troubles are gone because we're gone. Paul has nothing against wine. He actually tells Timothy in his pastoral letter to him, because you you have a little bit of a stomach problem. Why don't you take a glass of wine? But against drinking, he's adamant. He says, that's no way for Christians to behave. If you want to celebrate, then why not? Celebrate. But you know what to do. I think it's singing. But let your spirit be filled with hearts and lives, particularly your minds and imaginations. Use all the resources of the Christian tradition. It's poems, it's pictures, it's liturgies, it's hymns, it's opportunities to serve, it's family meals. Use those things to celebrate you, build you back up. But don't Get drunk is what he's saying to them. All right, now on to the relationship passage. But I want you to go with me someplace just for a minute. And this probably will cause a little bit more tension, but I hope that I can bring some resol- resolution. I've been reading a lot about this passage of scripture and I've been reading a lot about men's and women's and men's and women's history and adolescence in our culture today as it impacts all of this. And this is something that I agree with, but you may be hearing this for the first time. Some of the words might not be what you would like. And if you edit my Facebook video down, you could probably pull a clip out that won't be true to what I'm saying, but it might sound true because you edit it down because you're not including this part in it. Um, but but this is the deal. I, I want the Spirit to guide us, to bring revelation, to bring wisdom. But I think part of the problem why this passage hits so many people the hard way, especially in our generation, is that we have a cultural shift that's happened that's really causing damage to something that God has intended. Um, but it's been subtle, and it started with our children. I think today... Um, and specifically most of our civilized and sophisticated societies. You can go into tribal places in Africa and other parts of the world where there's definite, distinct family order. There seems to be a little bit more family peace than we have in our country today. Um, But yet, in this supposedly civilized and sophisticated countries, um, there's a growing up, and this is a quote, um, a whole generation of young men who feel themselves discriminated against simply because of being a man. And I know this is difficult because we're just coming off of conversations about racial discrimination, and we know the struggle women have had in our nation about discrimination. So I want you to go with me. I'm sensitive to that. But I also want to bring like a little bit of prophetic word about the children that are running around in our city enjoying gangs. Our young men are feeling discriminated against they have energy and drive often turning into aggression and violence without nobody to help them direct or channel it often they grow up in broken homes where their natural father has gone is gone for good and the succession of men keep coming few if any actually care for them still less do they provide appropriate role models the teachers at the school they are supposed to attend which they often skip are mostly female. Yes, women. Often the message they pick up as a result of that is it would have been better for me to be like a girl and to think and to feel like girls because girls are better. And I really would love for you to take that thought and just really let it rest on you and not make a conclusion on it right now, but actually look at the children of our city. The teachers are doing their best But boys and men are the major problem in our world today. I I want you guys to know that this is what I actually feel as a man. It's the boys and the men in the world. Like, there are so many women in our church right now that I believe are ready to be married. But there's nobody to get married to. I actually counseled a man last week whose daughter told him that she's choosing to be gay because she hates men. She was married to a pastor. And so I say, when I'm saying all of this, there is a serious man problem in our country today. We have the Me Too movement because of men. Most people that abuse children are men. But it's only by a radical change that I believe only comes through an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, us entering into Christ. There's only a radical change that that we are going to find that boys don't join gangs, that boys don't become violent, and that boys don't end up in jail, and that men aren't going to be dying young or causing problems. Of course, there are many boys, myself included, that did not go that route. So I'm not proclaiming a negativity over an entire culture. What I'm saying is is there's a disproportionate amount of kids that are struggling with what I've just shared with you. I'm one of the fortunate ones who came up through a good home, who had loving parents, who gave me what I needed, emotional, spiritual encouragement to pursue even good education. But I believe the point to note, which influences the way we approach this passage by Paul, is that the Western world has for an entire generation now reversed what it means to be a man and all the stereotypes associated with it. Since Aristotle, which he's not necessarily worth being following, but when you read his stuff, you've realized that men have regularly regarded themselves as superior to women and women are inferior to men. And he even wrote that women even felt okay with it. Um, But in the last few decades, we've seen a reversal in that popular consciousness. Thank the Lord. It's no longer that way. But now we have a generation where men have to apologize to women for being a man. The word testosterone nowadays doesn't just describe what happens inside of a boy. It's actually a negative word towards boys. Oh, you got to control that testosterone. Why is that? Because their teachers are female and And men need men to help them understand how to handle testosterone. In this climate today, and I believe for Paul's as well, um, he is telling wives to subject themselves to their husbands. To most of us looks like a cultural misstep, or Paul had lost his mind because. Men in our culture have lost their way and aren't worthy to be associated with. In my years of being pastor, people who um, cheerfully ignore this passage of scripture, they traditionally believe that is a terrible expression of what is intended. Um, They think that the passage should actually not be read out loud and pastors that read it out loud should be excommunicated. I've actually had people say kind of strong things like that to me in the past. But so often in Bible reading, not just Ephesians 5, pick your chapter in the Bible. Here's the situation. When something rubs us the wrong way and we struggle to want to believe it or even like it or think that it's true, there's several things that need to happen. We need to check our natural and sometimes aggressive attitude towards it. Why am I feeling this way towards this passage of Scripture? It's a healthy question for anything you read. But especially when you're doing biblical interpretation, why should I? Why am I reacting? Why does this passion, passage strike me as so objectionable? And why am I? Why am I reacting like this? And you need to ask yourself, do I really understand what this passage means? Because if we really understand what the passage means, our response might not be so visceral. The fascinating thing here is that Paul has a quite different way of going about addressing the problem of gender roles. He initially starts with the man here saying he's insisting that the husband should take his role model, not from the typical bossy man, gang leader, or crazy uncle that he was in his life, that nothing about a local politician or athlete or anything like He doesn't go in and say, pick a man, make them your role model. Who does he say needs to be the man's role model? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There is only one role model for a man. And that role model is Jesus himself. And when you and I begin to understand this, we can see some success. Recently, I was sitting in a Dunkin Donuts with a man that's struggling in his marriage because he's had no adult training. Let me just tell you this. This man is 10 years older than me, but he has had no adult training. And I brought up Jesus and he said to me, well, Jesus wasn't married. So this is how I began to think through that. But throughout this letter, Paul has spoken of the church, and as the body of the Messiah. And now he's producing a new twist in it. He's saying the church is actually the bride of the Messiah. So he's been saying the church is the body of Christ. Now, in this particular analogy to help men get it right, he's now saying the bride is the church, and. I am the Messiah and I'm waiting to meet my bride, right? The church became the, um, the, the Messiah's bride not by being drug off unwillingly and by force. He didn't come um, to take from his bride, but he came to give himself willingly for her. There is nothing that love could do for the Messiah's people that he did not do. For his bride, he did everything he possibly could. Jesus, in this context, according to Paul, is saying, is the perfect example of self-abandoning love. Some of the worst marriage advice you'll ever receive Meet your bride halfway. When you get halfway, she won't be there. (laughs) Paul, of course, lived in a world where women were not only regularly um, regarded as less. um, They were regarded as impure. Now, I want you to see in this passage how much he talks to the man in this passage about... Protecting the purity of his wife. Because for the first time, women, Jesus loved you so much, he changed culture to demonstrate his love for you. Because you have value. You're not unclean. And for some of you, you're like, no, I know I'm not unclean. Well, you didn't grow up in the first century. Where you were basically the head servant in the home at best. And sometimes you had to share the bed with a man with other women that were also married to him. And you had to enjoy it. And so we have to begin to walk in what Paul is saying to this first century. And this self-abandoning love, Paul is saying, of course, lived in a world where women were only regarded as lesser. And so Jesus is now stepping in as an example. So their body functions were deemed to make them dangerous for men. He wanted to maintain his own purity. And you guys know what body function I'm talking about. Right? Um, Paul sees the action of Jesus. And by parallel, he sets up the action of the husband as taking responsibility to bring the wife through that impurity. Instead of rejecting the wife at the time of the month, the husband is to cherish and take care of her to look after her and to let her know at all times that she's loved and valued if the husband not least a christian husband had even attempted to live up to this wonderful ideal do you think that there would be this mentality that men are just a grumbling boss at home and bullying men in the world are living in the home with you i mean just imagine if men actually treated women this way Would women ever be like, man, my husband is just a domineering jerk in the house. Paul assumes, as do most cultures, that there are significant difference between men and women. Differences that go far beyond mere biological and reproductive functions. Their functions and roles must therefore be mutually complementary rather than identical, right? You can't have the identical parts and be a complete thing. Right, and so there's different parts: personality, physical, all of that comes into play. But what I want to say to you guys in this is that that has nothing to do with voting rights, employment opportunities, fair pay. Um, all of that has nothing to do with what I'm saying about complementary. It's not means that the man is 70% of the home and the woman's 30% of the home. So when you go to work, you should get 30% of what you're due, versus men's getting 70%. This is not what Paul's saying. He's not making it a what women deserve outside of the home or whatever. This is an in-house conversation. And so Paul would agree with us. You're to do everything out of love. So if you have women employees, you do everything out of love. If you are a man, you do everything out of love. And that's the goal of all of this. And so there's an idea that that's the way that the church was supposed to be generous. But there are specific roles that men and women play. And within marriage, the guideline is clear. Whether we like it or not, whether you hear it or not, I just want you guys to know Paul is making a very clear statement that the husband is to take the lead in the house. But if you're married to a man that cherishes you, leaves everything for you, and cares for you even in your impurities and your bad self to to make you feel beautiful and clean all the time, is it really that difficult to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm good at following you? As soon as someone takes the lead and becomes bullying and arrogant, the whole thing falls apart. You can even be married to a strong woman and you're like, yeah, it's good. But on the days that she transitions to being bullying and arrogant, that even falls apart. So if these guidelines seem so outrageous to us in our culture today, we should ask ourselves a question. Do our modern societies, in which marriage is often tragically a joke, really offer a better model of how to do it than what Paul just talked to us about? Does the specter of broken homes littering our modern Western culture indicate that we've got it right and we can finally tell the rest of human history that we have now solved the battle of the sexes? Or does it indicate that we still need to do some rethinking somewhere? Paul underlines the rule of life that he's sketching out with a quote from Genesis 2, verse 24. The passage is actually read at a lot of weddings. The passage is about the man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife. This is full of psychological insight. So those of you that are studying psychology, I want you to focus on this verse and make it a matter of your psychology. All right. So I hope to appease the few of you with my little psychology to you experts in psychology. And you be like, "Wow, this actually did something there. Often what pulls a marriage off course is the failure of one or the other partner to distance themselves emotionally from other parents and devoting themselves totally to their spouse. I think this is worth pondering. Paul takes it, I think, a little bit different direction as well, because he's going back to Genesis even before human rebellion had tainted the world in general and relationships with the, the, between the sexes really got complicated, we, he sees a glimmer of God's ultimate intention for creation. Let me explain it. The man, the Messiah, will leave the place where he's at home to go in search for his bride. We're talking about Jesus in this passage. So what did he do? He was in heaven Sitting in total worship. And the father said to him, son, it's time for you to go be one of them. Die for them and save them. So what did he do? He left his father. He left his home. In order to go search for a bride. That ultimately would cost him everything to redeem There's a prophet in the Old Testament, Hosea. I really encourage you to read it. Um, It's a fascinating story where God actually says to Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. And he's like, what? (laughs) Um, That's my (laughs) dumbing down of the conversation. (laughs) But he's like, you want me to do what? You want me to marry a woman that I know is going to be unfaithful to me? Yep. Because everybody's watching you. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Everybody's watching you. And so I want you to be a living example of what Israel is to me. So every time she leaves you, pursue her, bring her back. She's going to leave you again, pursue her, bring her back. She's going to leave you, pursue her, bring her back. And then eventually the people of Israel realize what they're doing to me. So now we have a God that understands all of that, sends his son to do everything for the bride. Imagine what could happen in our marriages if that actually was what we did for one another. All right, finally, I'm at the end of chapter 5. So here's my closing. Here's what I want you to think about as we reflect on this. Don't go with the flow. Don't go with the flow anymore. We need to ask the Spirit to help us to see how we can get out of the flow. We might need to form a, a link of arms of guys and women together to get into the river to grab you, to pull you out, like as if the floods were in Houston. But you just have to say, I want out of the river. You need to think out who God is. Who is he? Do you know who he is? Have you actually take time to think about it? And then who are you in light of that? And learn to live in the light of God and his love. The other thing we talked about, for many people are in danger um, of not taking advantage of each hour and letting days pass by. We need to take advantage of our days, but we also need to balance it with relaxation and realizing who God is and who we are. And then the powerful truth that the Messiah left where he was because he so loved somebody else that he pursued them. Who in our life do we need to do that for? Especially if you're married. And that's, I think, good for both of us, men and women. But we need to contemplate the many-sided way in which the truth about God himself and the truth about how we live, out our most precious relationships, are intertwined with God's dream for us This book is about the purpose of the church and what obedience to him looks like. That's his dream for how we act until Jesus comes back and his kingdom is fully established. Are we evaluating our lives based upon the truth of that and are we fully in it? Father, I thank you for getting us through this long night. And I thank you that my brothers and sisters have not fallen asleep, nor have they thrown tomatoes at me. But father i want to do a good job of representing you i want to talk about your truth and so father as we go into a season of prayer to reflect upon what we've been taught lord would you teach us to pray through this would you give us eyes to see would you expose any lies that i shared and that and they would be cast away but would you confirm truth with the power of your holy spirit would you even perform miracles in your tonight to affirm that what i shared was true father also, would you give ears to the people in this room that they didn't just hear what they wanted to hear, but they, they were listening for what they needed. It's so easy to accuse our spouses or people we're in relationship with of not being like Christ, but Father, are we like Christ? And so Lord, we commit this time to you. Lord, show us, reveal to us, build us into the church that brings light into this city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.